All right. Uh, please, uh, as you guys are uh, getting settled, by the way, good morning. Glad you're with us. As you guys are getting settled, please remember people who are arriving at the 10 o'clock service will be showing up looking for a spot next to you so you can make them feel guilty for not waking up on time. Um, really good to be with you guys. This is one of my favorite weekends that we have. There are, you know, as Mahir mentioned, we have this weekend coming up next weekend, which is the Be Fearless weekend, which is, if any of us, any of you were here for the last time we did it, it was like one of the funnest things we've ever done. So that's coming up next week. But this is the, this is the next most, right, probably if you had to rank them, it's probably even a little bit more of my favorite. And um, this is going to be a great weekend. It's going to be a great, great morning. And um, we are concluding our series called The Beautiful Mess. We spent eight weeks looking at relationships. And I know some of you, based on some of the emails, we could have kept going for a lot more weeks. Some of you are like, please stop talking about this. Um, but well, one, of the, one of the things that I, I kept receiving as we talk about this series of Beautiful Mess is... Um, you know, this is a, what we know about every relationship is that there is beauty and greatness and wonder, and everybody wants to be in this, in relationships that work, but because, as we talked about over and over again throughout the entire series, we've said, you know, relationships are, the relationships are critical, they matter, they're beautiful, but because the relationships that we have are governed by human beings, and human beings are not perfect, um, they tend to be a little bit messy. And today what I want to do is, because, you know, maybe in some ways messy isn't even strong enough of a term that messy may actually be too light, that in some cases when we talk about relationships, there's some real hurt, there's some ugliness, there's some wounding. And what we're going to do today is we're going to get an opportunity, um, as we believe in God's power to do stuff in our lives, we're actually going to be able to bring that to him and ask that he would do something in our lives in our midst. And so um, you know, there's, we're going to have a chance at the end of the service to respond and receive prayer in a different way than usual, but um, you know, there's no reason why it has to be different than you. But anyway, people are going to come forward and receive some prayer and for healing. And so um, I'll talk about that. Some of you are like, whoa, this is going to be weird. I've never been here before. And they just said the word healing and what's going to happen. And, you know, I'll, hopefully I'll be able to, like, normalize it a little bit for you. But, you know, truthfully, it's still a little weird. I mean, God does stuff, and we go, we don't know why that happened. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up our, our, our um, beautiful mess series today. Jesus, as we come into today, um, some of us are... Um, you know, maybe we heard about or knew or understood that today was going to be a different day in terms of what's a typical weekend, that there's going to be an emphasis on your healing power. Some of us are reluctant. Some of us have things in our life that we're so, um, we're, we're so afraid that if we come forward and say, God, I need healing, that you won't deliver. We're afraid of what that might mean. Others of us, Father, as soon as we heard about it, we are already emotional and longing for the moment when we get to come forward and have someone in our church pray for us. Some of us as couples have come in here as um, married couples, engaged couples, even dating couples are just looking for healing and restoration, that there is a sense about a wanting to return things to the way that they were, and Jesus, we believe that you have the ability to restore, to reset things in their right place. God, for some of us, um, this whole thing is just completely bizarre. The idea that you would bring about healing is just unknown to us. And so, God, as we prayed earlier, as Danica prayed in the opening sort of worship set, that you would, your presence would be made known, that you would be um, tangible here, and that you, Holy Spirit, would be at work. And so for just a moment, um, we pause. And God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us not only the areas of um, our, our need for our, our healing, the wounds in our life that we need to bring forward, but also the reality of your closeness, your proximity to us, that we might receive that healing. And so we give you just um, a few seconds of silence that you might speak to us, Jesus.
Father, we pray for restoration. We pray for hope. We pray for newness. And we pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, hey, if, you are, uh, if you're looking to follow along today and you want to follow along in the outline, you can do that. It is in your bulletin. Um, I already kind of pointed out what the bulletin looks like. In there is a little outline. You can follow along there. You can follow along in the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 1, um, almost exclusively a little bit. We'll, we'll jump out of it a little bit, but almost exclusively in Mark chapter 1. Um, when I was in high school, this is, um, this is I, I remember my, I was, me and my buddy, which it's not, it's not fair to say that we were quite a Laurel and Hardy kind of like combination, because we we're both basically about the same height, but this guy was a little bit bigger than me. And um, he was, he was like, my, we, we learned how to ride two-wheel bikes together. He's one of my best friends in the whole world. Was, we were the best man in each other's wedding. And um, this is a guy, when we were in high school, we, at, at one of our all-school, you know, rallies. So everybody's in the, in the gym. Everybody from our school is there. And my buddy, Jason, goes, uh, he goes, I'm going to go up to the microphone, and I'm going to sing a song. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to sing a song. And I go, what are you going to sing? He goes, I'm going to sing part of this world, or part of your world, from Little Mermaid. <laughs> Seriously? He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, I know all the words. <laughs> I go, okay. So at some moment in this, I don't know how he got permission to do it or whatever, because no one stopped him, but he walked up to the microphone and just started going, look at this stuff, isn't it neat? I mean, it was like, he really knows the words. Wouldn't you think my... Yeah, some of you guys are like, no, the words, we aren't going to sing it. Yeah. And he goes, and, and there, you kind of get to this point in the song where, you know, you have this, this line which says, I want to be where the people are, you know, and, she, and, she, this is, she, and my buddy, who is this big dude, singing this song and just going for it. And, the, and embarrassingly or not embarrassingly, you know, whatever, the whole, the whole school starts singing this song. And there, there's everybody now, he's now led this entire song in a Disney cartoon song. For the entire school. And the point of it is, is this whole, this whole song is that there's this person, or this mermaid, who wants to be a part of a world that she can't be a part of. Because she's somehow excluded. And, and I just, as I was thinking about today, this is exactly what happens to people who are looking for healing in the first century. It's exactly the same. What happens to people in the first century as they're looking for healing, people who have sicknesses or illnesses are actually on the, are pushed to the margins of society. People don't know what to do with people who are wounded, people who are sick. People don't know what to do with them, not only because there's a medical issue. Most of the time, issues aren't sort of solved in medical formats. They're solved in different things. They're solved in a social and religious format, meaning people look at someone who's got an illness and they go, that person's unclean. We have to make sure that they're at a distance. And so when people came forward in part, as part of Jesus' ministry to receive healing, what they were receiving wasn't medical miracles, although that was part of it. What they're receiving is a reintroduction to society that they got to be where the people were. It wasn't just that they were kind of, you know, had a physical healing, which is great, but there's this bizarre connection between the Little Mermaid and what Jesus does in, in the first century. And I really want you to catch this. Let me give you some context to Mark chapter 1 where we pick it up. Jesus has started his ministry. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. Some of you are familiar with that story. He has begun his ministry. He starts telling people about this thing called the kingdom of God. And accompanying his preaching about the kingdom of God is healing. In fact, as we pick it up, he's just come from um, healing. Some of you guys know who Simon Peter is, or Peter, one of, the, one of the disciples. He's come from his mother-in-law's house, healing her. So he's telling people about this thing called the kingdom of God, which a part of the kingdom of God reality will be, a, will be the appearance or the you know, sort of newness of life and restoration and healing and hope. And he's talking about it and he's enacting it and people are starting to get pretty excited about it. And crowds are beginning to form around him. And Jesus' ministry is off and running. And this is where we pick it up in verse 35 of Mark chapter 1. So here's what it says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up 
left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now he does this because the crowds are all around him. He can't, there's no way he can walk anywhere now at this point because crowds follow him. It's the paparazzi and everything else, right? Verse 36. Simon and his companions went off to look, went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. So here's Jesus hiding out. Verse 38. Jesus replied, let us go, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. He's saying, I've come here to proclaim this thing called the kingdom of God, which I'm inaugurating, which will be fulfilled at a later date. But there's this beginning of God's work in the world right now, in and through me. And I want to tell people about that. Verse 39, so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching their synagogue, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, this is what you always see Jesus doing. He's preaching and healing and driving out demons. That's like the things he does in his ministry. So if you're looking at his ministry, you kind of go, what kind of stuff typify what he did? That's what it is. Preaching, teaching, I mean, preaching, healing, and driving out demons. Now, as he's doing this, as his goal is, again, to talk about the kingdom of God, and that he begins to show this with evidence of healing. Verse 40 says this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, the word leprosy, we, tend to, we have an idea what leprosy is. It, generally, that's what's called Hansen's syndrome or Hansen's disease. This is like where you imagine the, the fingers and stuff falling off. But leprosy covered a wide range of skin diseases. Anything that they couldn't identify, like that was on your skin, leprosy. So it's like, it's, a, it's everything that's not identifiable is like leprosy. And I want you to catch this. So what is it, what this guy is saying here, first of all, he doesn't ask Jesus for anything, which is really interesting. He does, but he doesn't. The language here is, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Meaning, there's some attribution of power to Jesus that he could do something but it's the language is he begged him, but he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And notice what he doesn't ask. The leper doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. He doesn't say, heal me. He says, make me clean. That there's something about what's being asked here, which healing is one part of it, which is, which is great. But what he's actually saying is, make me clean. It's the same as saying, the language is exactly the same as if he were to say, Jesus, declare to everybody that I'm clean. Tell everybody that I'm clean. I'm so tired of being called the leper. Just make me clean. In other words, declare that I'm clean. In the first century and in you know, the ancient world, there are, you know, between clean and unclean things, it is always the unclean thing that pollutes a clean thing. There's never a time in which in the ancient mind where a clean thing is so clean that it makes an unclean thing or an unclean person clean. It's always the reverse. People who are around unclean things or unclean people become unclean themselves. So people are constantly moving away from those who are deemed to be unclean. If there's a threat about you that you might be an unclean person, people will distance themselves. Now I have to say, just for a moment, I have to say that as we think about this for just a second, I wonder how different we really are. When people have been identified as quote-unquote unclean, for whatever reason, generally their response in people who, have, who are around those people is to start saying, I wonder if some of that by association will rub off on me. And so many of the people that come to church are wounded people going, I felt abandoned by everybody else because there's something going on here and I even felt wounded or abandoned by the church itself and I'm hurting. People keep saying, you're not clean enough. Go away. And this man says, Jesus, make me clean. There's a reason why he says it particularly about leprosy. In Leviticus, this is where there's like tons of 
if some of you have been reading it in the like daily message, the Bible, and you're like, oh my gosh, there is a hundred different distinctions. If there's like if you read Leviticus 13 and 14, if you read it, I know some of you you know trudge through it, and it's like there's verse after verse of if it's a white scar or white mark on their body, but doesn't but has a hair on it, then it's clean. If it doesn't have a hair, then it's unclean. If it's yellow, and it's like there's a hundred different distinctions, and the priest has to decide this clean or unclean. But at the end of chapter 13, well, all of this stuff. Here's this particular note about leprosy. Look what it says. Anyone with such a defiling disease, remember this is all skin diseases, must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, and cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. Now just imagine, first of all, this is already like, it's like a total insult. You're already, you're like, you have whatever skin disease, you have to mess up your hair, and then you have to wear torn clothes. As it's like everybody should just know everything about this person is not going well. The hair, the clothes, and they're screaming when they get to places where there are other people. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. Keep your distance. Then look what it says. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. If you're a person who has leprosy, there's a massive relational component. Like all issues with illness and sickness or whatever, the relational component here is you are barred from being in community with anybody. You're kept somehow or another away from ever being with anybody else. And this, this thing he wants more than anything else is not just to be healed. It's to be announced that he's no longer unclean. That he could walk among people and be with them. That there would be no more yelling, of him, yelling out loud, I'm unclean. Keep your distance. Get out of the way. Troublingly, I said, you know, troublingly, we know this already. I got an email from someone this week who said, you know, this is going to be any number of stories in here, but she said, you know, I've been divorced for a number of years, and I have kids, and my husband was unfaithful, and I don't know what to do, and I feel like my identity now is that I'm this divorced person. And I'm, I'm, she's, the word language is so painful to me. It was, I'm damaged goods and nobody wants me and I feel like a loser. And I feel like this is my identity. See, there's something that happens when we start saying out loud enough times and when we, we have this sort of wounding in our lives, we start saying over and over again, unclean, unclean, unclean becomes our identity. We start thinking, well, this is who I am. Because I've said it enough and everybody treats me like this. My own, my own sense of who I am is reflected back to me by the people around me. And if everybody keeps saying, you're unclean, you keep saying it and everybody else keeps saying it, that must be who you are. How devastating the social impact is for people who have wounds in their lives. There's a reason why so many of us feel the pressure to kind of put on the great and wonderful face wherever we go. That everyone would, no one would ever think to ask us a question about what's actually going on in the, in the real depths of our lives. When we come here, even in the morning, as we struggle to get our kids together, and you know, it's daylight savings time, and we're like, oh my gosh, it's early. We have, this, we have this whole everybody get together and try to make this happen, and we come to church. And there's a part of us that says, I want the veneer that everything's okay. Because I don't want anybody to move away from me. Because if they did, I'd feel so, I just can't shout out unclean. And the, if people really knew, they'd move away from me anyways. And so we live this life of kind of this... We're alone because nobody really knows us. Or we're alone because if they really did, we're afraid they'll move away from us. So the tragedy is that unclean becomes our identity. Some of you in this room have wounds that were not your fault. You have been given emotional scarring and emotional wounds from people who were supposed to love you and they did not. Some of you in this room have... Um, 
uh, have, you have your own self-inflicted wounds. Things that you have regretted, things that if people knew they were in your life, you would think, my gosh, I don't know if they'd let me come into this place. Others of you, you've been a person who has wounded other people. And every day you carry around this sense of like, I'm unclean and people know it and I'm a person who wounds other people and I want to be free. I want to, I want to live differently than that. Every one of us has a picture of wounds. Some of them are physical. But often, as we found throughout the series, the most dangerous, the most deadly, the most painful wounds in our lives aren't the ones that come from physical anything. Generally, they're the ones that come from the emotional attachment to that physical wounding. And so this man is saying, Jesus, make me clean. Verse 41. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, there's a couple of things here you have to catch. The word indignant here, this, this word basically means angry. It, I was reading this over and over again as I was studying this. And it's this, weird, it's this weird, weird phrase. I know you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. It's like, why are, who are you angry at, Jesus? Are you angry at the guy because he comes to you and says, I need healing? That doesn't make much sense. I mean, Jesus is known, one of the things that marks his ministry is compassion. So that can't be it. I think what's actually being said here is he's indignant at looking at someone, a person who has been shouting out everywhere he goes, unclean, unclean. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was like present at the time of creation. He was instrumental in creating all of everything. He's the sustainer of all things. And here's Jesus who intended life and the world to look differently. He sees a man who has been overcome with leprosy and has been banished from society. And he simply is so frustrated by that reality. I can't believe this man my own child, whom I dearly love, has been living by himself. Shouting everywhere he goes, I'm unclean. And so he's indignant. And then he says, I'm willing. And he touches him. He shouts, and Jesus says, be clean. The word be clean, by the way, is in the imperative voice. It's not like he's saying, it's a, meaning it's a command. Like he's almost, it's like he's talking to the leprosy itself. Be clean, be gone. You are commanded to. It's the, the words are not like, but I really hope God could do something. It's like be, there's a commanding authority of Jesus over this disease. And then he reaches out and touches the man. You have to imagine here, this is a man who has been banished from society. Nobody's touched him. Nobody's talked to him. His own family can't talk to him. His own kids, his own wife, whatever else, he, whatever other family connection, his mother, his father, none of them could have any connection with him. And he longed for the day when someone would say, you're clean, you're clean now, you're clean, because then he could touch people. He could have the interaction that we so long for. Jesus is the first person that has touched him and who knows how long. And it means that if someone could touch him, it means then that he is actually clean. So there's this man, alone, by himself, having to shout wherever he goes, I'm unclean, so that nobody else would be infected by his uncleanness. He has a wound that isn't just merely a disease, although he, you know, I'm sure wants to have that disease healed. What he's longing for is the relational stuff of life. He's longing to hold his own kids or his own wife or to be held by his mother or by his father, to walk, to hold hands and hands with whatever, whoever else it is in his life to be and have life a part of them. But he feels like, and he's been told, you must stay away from everybody. And then Jesus touches him. Jesus breaks all these rules. People look at Jesus like, well, you just touched a leper. And Jesus, to his own defense, could probably say, I touched a former leper. But Jesus is known to touch and associate with his people who would otherwise be called unclean. 
And here's kind of as the story kind of moves a little bit here. Verse 43. Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Now the strong warning there is like, literally the language is almost like, he almost, it's like the same, has the same root as like threatening. Like don't you dare go tell people this. Don't tell anybody, which is so strange. You know, in, in this in this ancient world, in this world, there are people who were reputed to be healers. And healers would walk around and they would say, tell everybody that something happened here because I need them to be around. I need huge crowds. I want the attention on me. I need that to happen. And the other thing is when I get these huge crowds, I can start charging them massive amounts of money. Jesus says, I don't want the crowds. Don't go tell anybody. Don't go, ma- I'm not into this. For the- I don't want the crowds. The crowds make it hard for me to tell people about the kingdom of God. So don't go telling anybody. Just make this about God's, God has healed you that is so great and so rich and so wonderful. But just don't make this about me. Please don't. Please don't make, I don't want the crowds. Then this man, verse 44, or you should continue on. He says this, but go, Jesus says, but go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So he says, here's what you're supposed to do. Don't go around saying, Jesus, healed. go to the priest like it's supposed to happen in Leviticus. Go there, let the priest go, you're clean. And let him declare to everybody, this man is now clean. Because what priests do, the one thing that priests do, different than healers is, priests are not ever attributed healing power. You don't see them in the Bible as people who are healed. The only thing that priests do is identify, because they believe God's the only person who can bring about healing. There's no celebrity healer. There's not, the only person who brings about healing is God himself. And the priest's role is simply to do this. Identify who is clean and who is not yet clean. That's all that they do. And Jesus says, God's power's healed you. You go and tell the, tell the priest, have them inspect you so they can tell everybody you're clean. Then no longer are you going to be on the outside of the world. You're going to be part of the world that you have been excluded from for so long. Now you get to be on the inside, but go to the priest because that's what we're supposed to do. You go do that and let him declare it. Sometimes for some of us, our experience at church or of church or of the church is one in which there's a reputation for the pastor or people at the church to kind of have a sideshow kind of parlor trick where there's this healing kind of moment and they kind of make it about themselves. I just want you to know. That is not what Jesus intends. It is not about the personalities of people who are doing praying or coming, whatever it is. That's not what this is about. This is about God's power at work and us faithfully coming to him going, okay, God, we're trusting you to do something that we don't have any control over. That's what this is about. Verse 45, he gets this stern warning. Here's what it is. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. It's almost like this. The man's healed. There's no way he can keep it in. I mean, you can imagine how hard it'd be if he starts showing up to his house, to his family, and they're like, you're back. You're back. Are you, what, uh, are you allowed to come in our house? Yeah, I'm healed. What happened? He can't not tell them. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody. I mean, he's like, he's going to tell people. His, his life has been realtered. Everything that he had before, this idea of being kept outside has now been totally done away with. And now he's no longer unclean, but clean. And he's now hanging out with his own family and with the workplaces and with all the other people in the community. And it's like, I'm clean. And they go, well, how did this happen? And he goes, Jesus. Somehow or another, this person spoke with authority over my disease and he called me clean. No longer am I unclean. 
You just simply couldn't contain it. He's talking freely with everybody, saying, God did something here. You know, we spent the last weeks, eight weeks, on relationships. We talked about the beauty and the mess of relationships. We talked about this idea that there are real needs and there's real shame. I got a lot of emails from a lot of people who said, a lot of our staff did too, and a lot of the prayer requests and things that came in are people who felt real shame about stuff that had happened in their lives. And one of the things that happens in when people have this experience of real shame is they wonder, am I the only person who really experiences this? Am I my own? Because I feel like I'm the only person who ever would know this kind of experience and know this kind of pain. What I want to do is, I, I asked a, a, a friend of mine to come and share her story. And I want you to hear it. This is um, Michelle, who's going to come up in a second. Michelle and I and our families have become really great friends. Yesterday, yesterday Friday and Saturday, we took our family. We're all, we, we both have three kids that are about the same age. I think our two youngest, I believe they're going to be married someday. Um, they already have declared that. They're five and six years old. Um, so we have an eye on them. Um, but we took our families camping this, this past weekend, and neither of us, neither of our families are good at camping. <laughs> Just to let you know, we, we, had, we probably had enough food to feed 300 campsites. Yeah, and you know, the, our, both of us, minivans and SUVs, just packed to the brim for one night of camping. Um, but we survived. It was great. We went all the way to El Moro, <laughs> uh, right there in Laguna Beach. But anyway, um, one of the things I love about Michelle is um, I love her story, and I believe it's a perfect example of God at work in redeeming and, and dealing with the stuff that's the real stuff of this beautiful mess series. So um, I want you to hear Michelle's story, and it is so, so good. So let's give her our attention. Let me help you. Sorry. Technical. Pay no attention to the microphone. There we go. I remember loving Jesus since I was six years old. I grew up in a loving home with parents who loved God and taught us to love him too. As I grew into my teenage years, I had an active, authentic relationship with Jesus. I was a leader of our Christian club at school and continued to be extremely active in our church, leading small groups and discipling junior high girls. Basically, I was your average good girl. I guess you could even say I had the perfect Christian family. But my entire world turned upside down when I was 19. I decided to go on a date with a guy who had really been pursuing me. I made one bad choice and became pregnant. I just remember being so mad at God. I kept thinking, this is so unfair. You don't understand. I made one bad choice. Honestly, my response to God was, really, God? Really? All these years of trying to follow you and obey you? I surely don't deserve this. How could you have let this happen? So pregnant and scared, I started to think about my options. I knew that ending this pregnancy was not something I could do. So the next step for me was to start telling my family and the people around me. Fearful doesn't even begin to explain how scared I was. I had let down everyone I loved. I mean, I came from the perfect Christian family, and now I'm the one messing all that up. What about the expectations, my family's reputation? I just felt this overwhelming sense of shame and humiliation. I felt utterly alone. As I went to church, I felt humiliated. As I continued to go to my college classes, I felt humiliated. I just wanted to disappear. Around the fourth month of my pregnancy, 
I continued to wrestle with my emotions and trying to figure out what to do. During that time, God started to show me that he had a plan and a future for me and my baby, and that it included another family. Over and over again, God made it very clear that he was preparing me to place my baby for adoption. He brought me the most beautiful family that really adopted me and my baby. We have an open adoption, which means I get to share in my daughter's life, which is beautiful and at times really messy. You might wonder, how does someone move forward after that? And quite honestly, I still struggle. Sometimes I still feel judged because Erin, my daughter, she's still a big part of my life. Every time she's with us and we meet new friends or a neighbor who doesn't already know my story, I'm thrown right into explaining everything, things most people don't have to go into with practical strangers. And people's reactions are not always heartwarming. I can't tell you how hurtful it is when people say to me, wow, how could you do that? I cannot even imagine. It's hard not to feel shame again. And I've carried that with me for a long, long time. But I remember one night about two years ago, sitting in my car in a parking lot, I was talking to a friend on the phone. As we were talking and sharing, I was finally able to identify the heavy, heavy burden I had been carrying. I finally could see that all my striving, all my doing to try to be the perfect mom, raise perfect kids, be the perfect daughter, wife, and friend, all of it was because I felt somehow I could make up for the pain and hurt that I caused my loved ones. Right there in my car, I cried out to God, and I begged him to free me from that weight. I begged him not to let me go one more day the same. I needed his rest, his peace. I literally pictured myself handing my burdens and putting them on the ground at his feet. And God is still healing and redeeming my story and my heart. He has shown me that even though I failed, I am not a failure. Jesus says I am his workmanship, and his thoughts towards me are of peace and not of evil. Even though I feel shame, I know I am his beloved, and he doesn't remember my failures. And to pull me through those times when I believe the lies, that I'm unworthy or unforgivable, I remember my story, all the miracles and providence he showed me along the way. In fact, since that time, almost 16 years ago, I married a wonderful man who loves Jesus, and we now have three beautiful children. And God continues to do miracles in my story. Like seven years after I had Aaron, to the day God gave me another baby girl, to the exact day. He not only healed and redeemed my story, but he redeemed that day. We named her Gracie. That can only be God. He said I would find him if I searched for him, and then he would bring me back from my captivity. That's how I keep moving forward. That's how I know and believe he has a hope and a future for me and that he is a God who heals. Thank you. You know, as we think about that story, there's so much probably that every one of us could connect with in that. You know, there's so much of it too for some of us that we go, I don't know how, I don't know how God could, I don't know how God could redeem stuff, but he does. For a lot of us who grew up in the church, we know, we know the experience of someone like Michelle who may have had this sort of, this, this sense of the church almost demanding that people who are in that situation be yelling out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, stay away. 
So there's so much hurt and pain, the relational pain that's caused by even the church itself, the one who's supposed to be part of this agent of healing and coming around and being a a part of the restoration and the no longer shaming and the no longer guilt and all that stuff, and yet there seems to be a compounding effect sometimes. This is a place. We believe in God's power to heal. We don't always understand it. People who have suffered long periods of illness or of emotional distress wonder why God isn't intervening in ways and I don't know the answers. I know that it's damaging when the church says to people who have experienced long periods of suffering that when the church says to them, it's probably because you don't have the faith, that's not true. just want to let you know that right now. We don't know how God works in healing. We know that he's capable and that he's also in charge of stuff. And we believe in faith that he does bring about inexplicable, miraculous healings. And for some of you, some of the most miraculous things that you need in your life aren't physical healings. It's a restoration of a broken marriage. It's a restoration of a soul that's been damaged by other emotional distress or whatever else it might be in your life. And yes, we're going to have an opportunity to come forward in a moment. You're going to have an opportunity to take a bold step and say, I don't know if this is going to work, but on faith, I'm coming forward. And I believe in Jesus is capable of healing for physical stuff, for emotional stuff, for relational distress. And we believe that that's what God can do. We believe that God's at work in, in one moment and ongoing. You heard Michelle talk about her own story, that there's a moment in her own life where there's like the, oh my gosh, is this, there's this two years ago moment where she says, I, have, I got a picture of God's grace. There's an end to the shame, and yet there's still a work in progress. And that's all of our story. Nobody's got everything dialed in. We're still human beings who manage to make mistakes. And God continues to redeem us. He continues to look at us and go, you're my dearly loved children. Call on me. Call on me. The Bible says this in James chapter 5. It's what we, as as people who are part of our our prayer ministry, they know this verse. They're a part of it. Our elders who are part of our elder team, they know this as well. It's Ephesians, I mean, it's James 5, 14. It says this. It's on your outline. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's what we're going to do. And I'll just explain so, just really quickly what that looks like. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us, as a, just sort of in a big group. And I'm going to invite you to come forward. And there'll be a team of people that are from our elder team and our prayer team and stuff like that that'll be up here in the front. And what they will do is they'll, they'll, they'll ask you, how can I pray for you? They're not counselors. They're not professional counselor people who, you know, this is their, what they're going to do is they're going to ask you, how can I pray for you? You don't have to start in the beginning of your story in third grade, and this is what happened, and then fourth grade, I met this person, and they you just, all you want to say is, I'm really hurting in this area. That can be emotional. That can be physical. It can be relational. It can be an addiction, a disease, whatever it is, and you just go, this is where I'm really hurting. Give them a sentence or two. And what they'll say to you is, you know, they'll say, it'd be okay if I place my hand on your shoulder just so that you get that sense of being, there's no longer an uncleanness to you, that we're partnering with you. One of the things you see in the Bible is that people who are prayed for are prayed for not at a distance, they're prayed up close for each other, and often there's a laying on of hands. That's all that that is. If you don't want them to for whatever reason, that's okay. In fact, I would say try to find someone that's the same gender as you to make it even easier. If it's appropriate, if you have a physical ailment that you need healing for, that they might, it's appropriate for them to touch you and like, you know, wherever it might be, that they'll ask you if that's okay too. And then what they'll do is they'll, they'll anoint you with oil. 
The anointing is a way of marking something out, as being chosen. Jesus, the word Messiah, in fact, is the word that just means anointed one. There's no magical power in the oil. It's not special, you know, olive oil that we grow somewhere in a special grove somewhere outside Jerusalem or something. I mean, you know, it's just like, this is just, just olive oil. And it's a way that says, this is a mark of us and it's a mark of God being upon you. That's all that it is. In some way, it, you know, it identifies you as belonging to God. It's a powerful symbol of that. And then what they will do is the, all the, the people who are praying for you will pray in the authority of the name Jesus. We see even people who didn't believe in Jesus were using Jesus' name to do stuff in the first century. But they, even the name of Jesus by, by unbelievers was powerful enough to do some works. But Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us, to call upon his name and his authority. Let me tell you one last thing about healing. I have been a part of healing things. Some of them have felt like a circus. Some of them have felt, like I said, like a sideshow act, and that's not what we're going to do here. Some people are healed instantly. Some people that I have seen people who have been healed instantly from things, and I, even as someone who's like a pastor, I'm always like, no way. And I'm supposed to act like, that's, of course that happened. You know, like, well, no big deal. Sure, obviously that happened. You know, and I'm always like, no way. Sometimes it happens instantly. Sometimes it is literally that moment of I once was and now I am, and that's like, holy smokes. And there are times where there's healing by like degrees. That over the course of time, people report back to us, over the past couple of weeks, I've done, this is what's been happening, or months, or years. I used to be like this, and now I'm like, slowly I'm seeing these things improve. Sometimes we don't have an answer. There just is no healing present in that any sort of given time. We just don't have an answer for that. And I wish we did. And most of the time, people who are have either they themselves are suffering or their own kids are suffering, they most often want to know why. And I would say most often than not, I don't know that a why answer is, or a because answer is sufficient to the why question. Why do I continue to suffer? Because there's, because there's a wonderful reason? I don't know there's a wonderful reason. And it is not the job of everybody else who is not you to tell you the reason. But we don't know why God doesn't always do everything we want him to do. We're not him. But we go before him because Jesus calls us to do this, to come before him in faith, not with all the answers and saying, God, we just trust that you're going to do something. And we believe in the authority and the power of your name to bring about healing in this area. And I am desperate and I reach up to you like a lonely, tiny little kid saying, can you hold me? Can you do this? And it's scary. We don't know if it's going to work. But we believe in faith that God will be at work in us. Let's pray together, and we'll have a moment to receive prayer. Jesus, every one of us can connect with the notion of pain. Every one of us has had suffering or loneliness. We've had doubt and darkness. Father, there is emotional distress in this room. There are marriages that are on the brink. There are people suffering addiction. There are people suffering disease and illness. There are people wondering, am I the only person who is really suffering in this room? Jesus, might you make it known that nobody here is completely by themselves. That part of what we do as a healing community is one in which we call on your power to bring about things that we are not in control over. 
So, Father, I pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit, there would be boldness, that there would be courage, that there would be faith. And, Father, that we would see you at work in powerful and miraculous ways, ways we cannot explain, ways that cause even the most of us, even the people who have been a part of a relationship with you or in your own family, a part of a church for a very long time, that even us, we would still go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Father, we realize this is not about the people who are doing the praying. It's not about a celebrity with a special power. It's about your power at work, in and through people. And so, Jesus, we pray that that would be made known today, and that there would be healing, and there would be restoration, and that there would be hope. And so as we sing, as we receive prayer, might your presence be made known. Might healing be a part of our language, a part of our hope. And so, Jesus, we pray all these things in your name, the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.